This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free online resource for health professionals' education. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School. It's my great privilege to have with us today Dr. Adrian Randolph. Dr. Randolph is Senior Associate in Critical Care Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor of Anesthesia and Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. We're here today to discuss Dr. Randolph's manuscript published in JAMA ahead of print on February 24th, 2021, and published in print in JAMA on March 16th, 2021, entitled Characteristics and Outcomes of U.S. Children and Adolescents with Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome in Children, MISC, Compared with Severe Acute COVID-19. Adrian, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for allowing us to share our findings. Can I begin with asking you this? The, uh, this study is one of many that has emerged and will emerge from your research consortium entitled Overcoming COVID-19 Investigators. What was the origins of this research network? Yes, uh, thank you. The Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators Network, which as you know, I founded with other people, Jacques Lacroix, Doug Wilson in, in 2002, merging multiple networks together. In 2007, I was funded by the CDC to, for an influenza study. Our relationship with the CDC grew, and we did a vaccine effectiveness study in 2010 through 12. And at the end of that, they decided to help us create a pandemic preparedness network in case a pandemic came. When 2013, this protocol was approved by the IRB, we sat there for seven years, literally with the 30-something sites just continuing to get our protocol approved in case a pandemic came, which we all thought would be flu. But it was called influenza and other emerging pathogens. So it was called the PIC flu, Pediatric Intensive Care Influenza and Emerging Pathogens Network. And we were able to then jump in right away and collect data in the event of a pandemic, because we knew in 2009 pandemic, when we worked with the government to collect data, there was a six month lag before you could get all the paperwork through and get all the sites up and get everything moving. So we wanted to be able to just jump in and do. And so when COVID came, we decided to call it overcoming COVID-19. And then we basically, you know, MISC was defined in you know, May 15th by the CDC and World Health Organization, we were able to have collected data and submitted our paper to New England Journal May 25th on the first, um, you know, paper we had on MISC, 186 cases. So it shows, you know, even though we had to sit there for, you know, seven years, renewing our IRBs and getting prepared, it was worth it because otherwise we would have been four, five, six months before you can pull it all together. Well, uh, that's a, a classic example of uh, the investment in science that certainly did pay off. But as you noted, everyone thought it would be influenza and it turned out to be something that we didn't know. But today we'd like to talk with you again about your manuscript, which appeared in JAMA ahead of print on February 24th, 2021, and in print on March 16th, 2021. Characteristics and Outcomes of U.S. Children and Adolescents with Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome in Children, MISC, compared with Severe Acute COVID-19. 
again in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. As you've just noted, this was a prospective case series of 1,100 patients younger than 21 years, roughly half of whom had MISC and half of whom had severe coronavirus disease 2019. What are the salient findings as you see it from this manuscript? So this was a work to compare. We knew from just tracking this disease in children, what the two diseases that are basically created by coronavirus in children, one is more the acute presentation and another is more of a post-infectious presentation that there were differences. However, the definition of multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children is pretty broad. And in fact, as an intensivist, you would recognize that a lot of kids with infections, severe infections with multi-organ involvement would meet that definition. And so we knew that, that there may be some misclassification or overlap between the two definitions. And so one of the things we we're trying to do is help to refine the diagnosis of MIS-C by comparing these two groups. And that was one of our, our aims in this. And clearly, you know, there was some overlap, which we showed, but the MIS-C patients were more likely to have cardiovascular involvement or mucocutaneous involvement and surprisingly, and this is important because the, some of the definitions for MIS-C, like the World Health Organization, ignore respiratory involvement, but most of the MIS-C patients actually had cardiorespiratory involvement. And so whether it's due to the heart being involved and in leading to pulmonary edema, whether it's both is unclear, but cardiorespiratory involvement was the most common but what distinguished really was the heart was involved or there was mucocutaneous involvement kind of similar to Kawasaki disease. There was also the features that most of these kids were between six and 12 years age. That was more likely to be MIS-C than acute COVID-19, which was more likely very young kids or teenagers. And most of these kids were previously healthy, uh, like 70% whereas only about 35, 40% of the acute COVID-19 kids were previously healthy. So those were the differences that we saw, but the striking finding of the cardiovascular and mucocutaneous involvement, mucocutaneous meaning rash, skin involvement, as well as muco the mucous membranes of the mouth, the eyes, in, you know, involvement of the eyes, the corneas, the tongue, there's multiple features that were all more characteristically part of being diagnosed with MIS-C. Dr. Randolph, I know in, in the media around the publication of this paper, this study, there was a great deal of questions about whether there are ethnic or racial differences between children who contract MIS-C versus those who contract severe COVID-19. What did your study find in this regard? Yes, um, the, we did find differences. We used the uh, white non-Hispanic children as a reference group to compare because overall, the majority of the children were either black non-Hispanic or Hispanic. And that goes with prior studies showing that unfortunately these children bear, you know, a high burden of this illness from acute COVID-19 or MIS-C. But to our surprise, we did find that the African-American or African children were more likely than white children to have more MIS-C than acute COVID-19. 
whereas it was somewhat equally distributed, more equally distributed in the Hispanic children. So are African-American children at more risk for Miss C? That is a question that we are investigating and trying to figure, as we try to figure out what is triggering this, we do know that these children were previously exposed to SARS-CoV-2 because they're either PCR positive or antibody positive and many are antibody positive, PCR negative. But why would these children be at higher risk is the question. Could I ask you uh, regarding the biomarker and inflammatory markers that you found distinguishing the two cohorts, what struck you about the MISC patients? Well, they are much more inflamed, Jeff. Their you know, C-reactive protein level is markedly higher than those with acute COVID-19, even though both groups are pretty inflamed. I mean, acute COVID-19 is very inflammatory, but the MIS-C patients were what much more inflamed than the acute COVID-19. The other thing is that they had a higher ratio of neutrophils to lymphocytes. So they were very, much more lymphopenic, but had a high neutrophil count. So that is, was a very helpful marker of inflammation. It's not something we use pre-COVID, but that can also be helpful. Their platelet count was lower. And um, those three things that people are, are normal lab tests that everybody gets at the beginning, because you usually get a CBC with diff and CRP is available. If people didn't get a CRP, their procalcitonin was another common test that people used in Although we didn't publish that, except in the supplement, that's another thing that was markedly higher. So these patients were very inflamed. The other thing for a clinician is that most of them, you know, it says multi-system inflammatory. Well, most of them had three, four, five systems involved. These patients were very sick. And then fever, you know, there were some kids that got the classification that maybe had fever for a day. But most of these kids were three, four, five days of fever. These were prolonged fever. Now, fortunately, um, as you well know, MISC is a somewhat self-limited disease. Do the findings of your study reassure you that most of these kids with MISC recover uneventfully? And of course, could you comment in particular about either the overlap with KD or with the striking ejection fraction problems do some of these kids have lingering ventricular dysfunction and or aneurysms? So that is one of the main findings of our study. We got the reports de-identified of over 1,200 children, uh, you know, over 1,200 reports, because some were multiple reports in some patients, and reviewed them all with uh, expert cardiologists, including Jane Neuberger, Kevin Friedman, who are part of the study and try to determine over time whether the issues resolved because over half of the patients had some kind of cardiovascular involvement, half were on vasopressors, about 10% developed aneurysms, which we used a pretty rigorous cutoff of, of a Z-score of 2.5 to say that they had an aneurysm, but the great majority we had to resolve by 30 days. And then the ones that we did follow out to 90 days, those, you know, we didn't get everybody did resolve. Now, should you be completely reassured? Well, it seems different than Kawasaki disease because those ones get live, you know, long-term, you know, it's all vasculitis and it affects the uh, coronary arteries longer term. But what is of concern is that the heart muscle may be affected longer term. And we don't know that. Other studies have shown longer terms on the effects of the heart muscle. So Jane Newberger and colleagues are leading a study called MUSIC 
that is doing long-term follow-up of the heart, much more sensitive follow-up in a protocol to determine whether these the, the heart is affected. So that, you know, our findings, whereas they were reassuring and they look a bit different than Kawasaki disease, we can't rule out that there are not longer-term effects on the heart. Could we turn now to treatments? You know, this was a prospective observational study. It wasn't an RCT trying to examine the efficacy of various treatments, but nonetheless, what strikes you about treatment regimens? What do we know? Is it safe to say that IVIG and steroids are indicated for most, if not all, patients with MISC? What can you tell us about that? So that's a very, very important question because I can say that the great majority of these patients with MISC did get IVIG, which is a you know medication that is in short supply. And these are large patients. These aren't young children like with Kawasaki disease. These are mostly you know older older kids, and many are adult size. Many of these patients also got steroids. They also many of them got biologic agents like anti-cytokine treatments. And the thing is that it was very highly variable how these treatments were applied, and it's very important to look at what data we have, which we are currently doing, trying to make sense of it to make what recommendations or can we make from what data we've gathered? Because, you know, it's, this is a U.S. You know, national study. And one thing I can tell you for sure is it's highly variable how these patients are treated. Although IVIG is the most common across most all the patients, and then corticosteroids is another very, very commonly used. And then the rest is highly variable. But as you noted, um, uh, as it was not an RC, RCT designed to examine the efficacy of really all you can do is describe really you know, what is being done right now. And other studies are underway, as you said. So this is the problem with MIS-C is that it is a rare disease. And people need to realize that we're talking about two per hundred thousand for Miss C was shown in the New York State uh, report where they had an actual population denominator to estimate. And it follows COVID-19 surges. So it follows COVID-19 surges, fairly reliable across the United States, across other countries by about three to six weeks. So because we can't predict where is COVID-19 surges going to happen next, A and B, it's still, you know, fairly uncommon, rare, considered a rare presentation. It makes it really hard to do a trial because to set up a trial, you need a consistent number of sites that are sitting there waiting that have a consistent number of patients that are kind of come in with the presentation. And, you know, hopefully we can get rid of, Miss see if we get rid of COVID-19 outbreaks. But right now we're still seeing a lot of it, but it's very not consistently being at all the same centers all the time. It's moving around, making it very, very hard to do a randomized controlled trial. Well, Dr. Randolph, as you well know, this virus has been uh, mutating over the past nine, 10 months. And colleagues uh, across the country have recently been asking me if I was seeing any change in the presentation of MISC here in Boston, because they felt that they were seeing clusters in the last six to eight weeks of MISC children presenting with a hypercoagulable state in particular, with uh, compromised limbs, et cetera. Was there any signal in your data to suggest that the 
phenotypic presentation or the inflammatory biomarkers were changing over time in the past year? And in particular, have you seen any signal suggesting that hypercoagulable presentation is something new or evolving? Have you seen any of that? So that's a very good question. And other people have asked me that. And I just wanted to point out that it's always been a severe disease. I mean, five organ systems involved in most of the patients, 70% in the 80% in the ICU, half on vasopressors, most of them having positive D-dimers and coagulopathic. And although they don't necessarily get intubated at high rates, there's still, you know, many of them do get intubated. And there's also use of ECMO rescue and other things across different centers. So it's always been scattered cases that are very, very severe. So it is a severe disease at baseline. Now, is it become more severe? Well, nobody has reported a higher mortality rate and luckily mortality is still low at about 2%, 2 to 3% across the United States. The CDC does track this through the state reporting, but that said, we, you know, each center is now, we're looking at data across each center before we say, did something really change? Of course, things come up like, okay, is this due to the new variants of concern that are triggering a different, more severe disease? Um, you know, that is another question. And, you know, I just want to point out that there's always been severe cases at all these sites that, you know, that are scattered. And despite the really you know, high disease severity, it's reassuring that with treatment and rescue, these patients in general survive and do fairly well. We have had other cases with loss of limbs. We also had a neurology paper recently in JAMA Neurology where about half the patients were Miss C and some of them had severe neurologic complications. So you know, this affects multiple organ systems, coagulopathy, neurologic complications, GI complications, cardiac, of course, the most common, but it's multi-system. And I think that uh, this merits, all these kids need to be followed up as well, because, you know, some of them can relapse as well and come back with a second episode. So I do think that uh, the, you know, jury's out on whether, oh, are we now seeing a much more severe, as far as mortality, I would think that signal would come through quickly in the CDC um, tracking. Um, as far as morbidity, that's something that we're evaluating right now. So Adrian, can I turn to um, two controversial areas? First, as described, this manuscript was a prospective cohort study. It was not designed to evaluate uh, potential difficulties with the development of vaccine in children. Nonetheless, you are you know, expert and well familiar in this area. And is there any data from your study that would suggest that the development of a vaccine in children will be problematic? And in particular, the MISC patients, uh, the concern has been raised that they may be at high risk for either kind of a vaccine-associated effects or antibody-dependent enhancement. And uh, do you have any comment on that? So we really don't have any data from the, these cases, these case series that we've collected in this registry about that. We have a second study looking at immunobiology that we have not yet analyzed the data, but we have over 100 MISC cases and we have 300 acute COVID-19 
We're right now doing some antibody studies with the FDA and we're planning other studies with additional investigators to look at exactly at this because almost all the published studies have been on tiny numbers of patients, like 10 to 20 MIS-C patients. What we need is larger studies with you know, over 100 MIS-C patients to really identify uh, what their antibody response has been. Um, and we need controls because most of these studies have not had the right controls, which are patients at risk for MIS-C who didn't get it, who are also about three to six weeks out from a mild COVID you know, infection. So I think that's a really good question. The truth is, if we can get rid of COVID, we'll likely get rid of MIS-C. It's tracking after COVID, you know, and children also spread COVID. And, you know, and there are some children, this is another important point of this paper, about 30 to 40% of the kids in the acute COVID-19 arm who got severe complications, which was the only ones we included in this paper, were previously healthy. And it was the numbers were kind of similar. So, I mean, it's, it's very rare. Most kids are protected, but it's, you know, let's get rid of COVID and then we can get rid of some of these complications related to COVID. Well, I told you I had, I had two controversial questions for you. And of course, the last question, I know uh, you've been asked by the media because you've been interviewed several times after the New England Journal paper and the JAMA paper more than several times. And of course, one of the questions I know people ask you is the question I'm going to ask you. Is there anything from the data in this manuscript, this study, or from all of the investigation that you've been doing over the past now, almost full year, that gives you any insight as to whether it is safe to reopen schools, especially for children uh, age 10 and younger? I am a big proponent of getting these kids back in school because we can do it safely. I want to emphasize that these complications, both of them, especially for previously healthy children with the acute COVID-19, but even the MIS-C, we're talking about rare complications. The great majority of kids who get COVID do fine with COVID. Um, they are somehow protected against getting severe lung disease from COVID. These are rare complications. They're not clearly predictable. And I think that the side effects of not going to school and the loneliness and all the psychiatric effects are what's been very predominant. And as you know, has been leading to a lot of hospitalizations in children. And I think we have to weigh the risks and benefits of keeping these kids out of school versus the risk of these rare complications occurring. We do need to know about these rare complications. They do occur. We need to know how to treat them. We need to identify them early, intervene. But for the general population, we need to um, make sure that we keep it in context of how infrequent these are. Well, finally, Dr. Randolph, could you share with us where are the COVID-19 investigators going now? What's your research roadmap? We are focused on five different um, studies right now. One study is looking at risk factors for MIS-C and sequelae. Another is looking at neurologic sequelae of both MIS-C and acute COVID-19 with a very intensive neurologic interview and follow-up. We also continuing to um, do the registry and, I, and trying to better refine the diagnosis of MIS-C and help to distinguish it from acute COVID-19. 
And finally, we're actually setting up to do an, a COVID-19 uh, vaccine effectiveness study in preventing both acute COVID-19 and MIS-C. And that is our big uh, study we're designing right at the moment. Well, Dr. Adrian Randolph, on behalf of colleagues around the, the world, really, we thank you and your colleagues as part of the Overcoming COVID-19 Network for all of the terrific work that you're doing to help us better understand the impact of uh, severe acute COVID-19 on children, and now more recently, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Uh, thank you for all your work, and um, we look forward to more productivity and publications coming from your, your network uh, shortly. Thank you, Jeff. It has been a pleasure. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. Check out the description box to view the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast. To hear more podcasts like this one, log on to openpediatrics.org.